It's wonderful to be back in the house of the Lord. Thank you all for your prayers. Uh, Dana is also almost fully recovered. She will be in church this weekend. Uh, If I uh, cough while I'm preaching, there's still a little tickling in the back of my throat. I want to assure you I am no longer contagious. Um, So you can relax. Uh, We're continuing our um, series on birth pains in the body of Christ. This is the penultimate message. Uh, That means it's the second last one. Uh, The last time I shared a message with you, the topic was the first birth, speaking about the fact that Jesus in his birth uh, was the progenitor, was the first of a new race of humans, Uh, those of us who will inherit eternal life, Uh, The Adamic race was put to death with the death of Jesus. With the resurrection of Jesus, a whole new species of human beings came to the fore. And we are part of that family. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about the last death. Um, It's interesting that Christianity does not begin with the birth of Christ, but with the death of Christ. Uh, His physical birth marked the first step to establish a new human race. But without the death of Jesus, we have nothing. Uh, We have no grace, no forgiveness, no mercy, no hope. And without the the resurrection that could only follow his death, we have nothing to look forward to but a fearful leap into the dark when we die. That's why we don't celebrate the birth of Jesus at Communion but his death. The sentimental restory of the retelling of his birth, and we've just been through all of that, um, and all the iconic scenes of mangers and wise men and shepherds and Christmas trees presents a picture that uh, effectively obscures the truth. Nothing about the nativity or the life or the death of Jesus was frivolous. Nothing. Yet the tragedy of our contemporary culture is that the gospel is viewed mostly as frilly stuff on the borders of Christian life. Such profound failure to comprehend and appreciate the full meaning of the birth and shameful death of God in the form of Jesus Christ, who did it for us, dulls Christian awareness and our motivation to live godly in Christ Jesus and so experience joy unspeakable and peace beyond explanation. Let's pause there and pray and continue the message. Father, please uh, bless me as I share this message. Bless us as we listen. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible privilege of standing behind the sacred desk and breaking the bread of life. Oh, God, may we never lose the wonder of your presence in your word. So bless us this evening, I pray, in the name of our precious Savior. Amen. Of Christ's death, it was said that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising or disregarding the shame. But what joy could motivate the God of heaven to voluntarily suffer so much? Scripture acknowledges the difficulty of comprehending the gospel. The whole thing is a mystery. 
Without controversy, in 1 Timothy 3.16, we read this, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. It is a mystery. It begins with the revelation that the all-powerful, infinite, and eternal creator of the vast universe became part of his creation when he was born as a human. That's an incomprehensible fact, and we see it brought to life in the gospel when in John 8, 54, 58, we see Jesus disputing with a group of Hebrew scholars uh, and hearing from his mouth that the humble Jewish peasant talking to them, which is what they saw when they looked at Jesus, just a humble peasant from Nazareth, a little town out in the boonies, and he declared to them with a perfectly straight face that he was the same God that spoke to Abraham 2,000 years previous to that occasion. Can you imagine being one of those Jewish scholars hearing that from Jesus' mouth? How do you comprehend such a thing? Uh, elements of the mystery of Christ are found in a remarkable passage in Colossians 1, 15 to 22, I've referred to this before, revealing that he, God, is the, uh, he, excuse me, Jesus is the invisible, is the human face of the invisible God, firstborn in rank over all creation, which he created, including things we can't see and we can see. Moreover, he holds everything together and fills everything and reconciles everything in heaven and earth to himself. In him resides all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and all the fullness of God. And all of that is packed into a few verses in, first, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 22, 2 verse 3 and 2 and verse 9. You could meditate for a lifetime on what I've just said there. It's all incredible. Colossians chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 gives us a glimpse of the supernatural deity of Christ and our, the mystery of our intimate association with him through our salvation. It says this, The mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's absolutely fantastic and incomprehensible and wonderful and glorious. And I encourage you to meditate on statements like that. That's how we grow close to God. When, when you try and grasp it with your mind and think about the implications of what the Word says, that the God of the universe spoke it into existence, that same God lives in me and in you. And the heart of this mystery is that it required his death. Not just any death, but one that included brutal torture and a horrifying association with every sin ever committed by every man, woman, and child who ever lived. The mystery of Christ in us 
And us in Christ deepens when Scripture adds the detail that when he died, we died. To add further complexity to the mystery, we are told elsewhere that we're already dead. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we read, Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now the key to all this mystery is well known to those of us who understand the salvation in Christ. God did it because he was motivated by love to save us, and he did it in the only way that would maintain his integrity as holy and just. It's the only way he could have done it. As incredible as it seems, as hard as it is for us to understand it, it's the only way God could have done it. Those who have been bought for such a high price appreciate the deeply profound truth that the one who is the key to this mystery is also the creator and creation. Jesus Christ became part of creation. He is God and servant. He is king and advocate. He is prosecutor and plaintiff standing as mediator for the unlovely us before a divine and uncompromising judge. What a God. What a mystery. We who are hopelessly guilty yet have hope and new life through Christ's sacrifice and mediation for us as we enjoy the priceless gift of eternal life and share in his glory. So that's the mystery. Let's take a brief look at the guilty. That's us. Just how guilty are we? You and I inherited sin and death, and both physical and spiritual, from our ancestor Adam. To reverse this curse, it was necessary for our creator to become one of us in every way, but with a unique difference. He's the only human ever born who lived a perfect life fulfilling every single detail of the immeasurable law of God. Every requirement of that law, while living amongst those capable of every gross sin and mocking that law. He actually lived amongst us. Uh, in the last message, I tried to illustrate what it must have been like for Jesus. Can you imagine being sinless and living in a world rotten with sin, it was like living in a perpetual sewer. He was surrounded by the rottenness of the human estate. And he accepted that in order to save us. The so-called Ten Commandments that he kept are a summary of holy requirements to be obeyed completely, not merely through outward observance, breaking any part of the law, and we've done that often, confirms the total corruption within us. This knowledge of our inadequacy acts, as we read in Scripture, as a schoolmaster pointing us to Jesus Christ as the only remedy for our problem. If you're saved, Christ the remedy is known to you and appreciated. Well, I sure hope it is. I sure hope he is. But less appreciated is the full extent of Christ's sacrifice as he drank the cup of the curse of God upon all our sin, our sinful nature and our sinful do deeds, and in so doing set us free 
from sin's power and sin's penalty. Uh, in James 4 and verse 4, uh, sin is likened to spiritual adultery. And uh, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see several references, several allegorical pictures of how depraved we are. The best you'll find, and I've preached on that before, is in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's one of those chapters in the Bible that is worth revisiting on a regular basis. Chapter 16 of Ezekiel is gut-wrenching if you read it with the knowledge that it's talking about you, just how utterly depraved we are. The extent of our guilt subjected our Savior to unspeakable horror, as illustrated in an obscure passage from Numbers chapter 5, verses 15 to 29. We don't have time to read it tonight, but I commend it to you to read again to understand what Jesus did for us to save us, dealing with the test for an adulterous wife. And remember, we are likened to adulterers. The wife who is suspected of adultery must drink from a cup that contains a curse. If she is guilty, the curse will rot her insides and she will die. And we are that adulterous woman, and sin is our lover, and oh, we love her. In Matthew 26, 39 to 42, we read that a cup, our cup, was offered to Jesus on the night before his death. And it's small wonder that he initially recoiled from it, crying out, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26 and verse 39. But a little later he prayed, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. That cup was meant for us, containing our curse for our sins. But his cup, the cup he drank, contained a curse for the sins of the entire world, every human who's ever lived, and every small sin and every vile deed of everybody was in his cup. The Apostle Peter describes the inevitable death that followed when Jesus drained the cup. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. What a savior. Well then, that's us, the guilty ones. But we're also the gifted enormously gifted. It was in every way a horrible death that marked the end of the race of Adam. Do you realize Adam's great achievement in his life was to infect all of us with sin? That's what he achieved by his disobedience. And because sin could not be cured, the, the Adamic race had to be eliminated. It was a radical solution accomplished by the death of Jesus as the last Adam. That's why he's called the last Adam. The first Adam messed up. The last Adam had to put that race to death. Do you realize that if you are a member still of the Adamic race, you can never get into heaven? There is no way you'll ever see eternal life. You have to become part of a new race of people that belong to the second man, Jesus Christ. The complete picture of what was done on our behalf is presented in 2 Timothy 
chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Let's read that together. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And listen to this incredible statement. Who hath abolished death and brought, hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. His death abolished death for us. He literally put death to death so that we could live. To summarize this passage, verse, tell, verse 8 tells us that by God's power we accept our share of suffering for the gospel. And that's an issue I've touched on also in this. That's part of the birth pains of the body of Christ. Uh, we simply have to accept the fact that if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. You're going to be tested and tried because that's how God draws us closer to him. But by his power, we accept our share of suffering. Verses 9 and 10 declare that God's purpose before the world began or before time began was to break the power of death and bring life to light by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He truly was the last death. Paul's letter to the Romans also addresses the subject. It's an amazing passage that looks at this in some details, and we'll go through that. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, and verse 22. Uh, and as we read through it, just pay attention to the fact that in verse 3, it tells us to know. In verse 11, to reckon or to put to our account. In verse 13, to yield or submit to God. And the result, we bear fruit in verse 23. So let's read that together. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how that we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. And you say, well, how did we die? And it tells us, know ye not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's the key to everything in the Christian life. That we understand we died with him and we resurrected with him and we have a new life. We don't belong to this world anymore. We're not like this world anymore. We have a new DNA, a, new, a totally new species of human who are going to inherit eternal life. And when sin comes and knocks on our door, we should look at it as an absolute stranger. What are you talking about? I don't even recognize you. I belong somewhere else. Verse 8, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Oh, we need to know this, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Hallelujah. Knowing that as Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth 
unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just wonderful words, wonderful thoughts, just pour out of this book. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't submit to sin, but yield, submit yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. And then look at verse 22. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. And the glorious conclusion to this whole passage comes in verse 23, of one that's very well known to soul winners, Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. What an amazingly powerful statement. The wages of sin that everyone earns from the moment they can think for themselves. The pay for our sin is eternal death. But <clears throat> the gift of God is eternal life. The effect of the gift of God is provided in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Boy, that's good, isn't it? Think on the price paid for this gift. Think about that price the next time you are moved to doubt God or even to accuse God. Because circumstances in your life do not work out quite the way you would like them to. Being alive in Christ is in every way worth living for, and it is also, if necessary, worth dying for. Either death to self, our self-will, or literally laying down our lives for him. And that then brings us to the glorious. We are the gifted, we are the guilty, and we're also the glorious. I mean, what we inherit in Christ is absolutely glorious. And it's what we inherit is created by two births, two deaths, and one salvation. We must be born twice to enter heaven. We must also die twice. The first birth is physical. The second birth is spiritual. We are born again, the Bible tells us. But in our spiritual birth, we also experience our first death. Death to self. When you repent, when you return from this world and turn to Jesus and accept and ask for his salvation and take his life into you, you are literally dying to your old life. And that death is made very real in our baptism. The second death is physical and produces an instant transition from this present evil world where sin and pain and suffering is an inescapable reality to the presence of God where life is the only reality. Hallelujah! As a final thought on the subject of birth and death, consider that the resurrection of Jesus after his death was not a reversal of his incarnation at birth. This is an amazing thought. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, he was not whom he had been before. Born as a human baby in a manger, he did not return to his former human state in his resurrection. But neither was he God as he had been before his incarnation. He now possessed a human body that was the very first of its kind. Luke chapter 24 from verse 36 to 43 and 50 and 51 reveals this truth. Just amazing statements here. And as they thus spake, so the disciples are talking to each other, wondering what's happened to him. This is after his death, and they've heard about his resurrection. As they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified. Wouldn't you be? If suddenly Jesus appeared right here, you'd be a little taken aback. They were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me, touch me, and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? Now he wasn't hungry. He did this specifically to show them, Listen, I'm, you know, I'm a body. I'm actually, I'm not a, a, a spirit. Give me something to eat and I'll show you. Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a an honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And then if we jump to 50 and 51, and he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now notice that although Jesus had flesh and bones and that could be touched, he did not have blood. Moreover, he could appear and disappear at will, as demonstrated by his sudden appearance among his disciples and later his ascension into heaven. And in our resurrection, we're going to have a body just like that. Makes Star Wars look so old and decrepit by comparison. We will not be intangible spirits like angels, but a completely new creation in Christ. As Scripture declares, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, all of us have experienced that new life, that new something, but it will become tangible at the resurrection. Paul elaborates on the nature of this new creation in his first letter to the Corinthians. He's speaking here of what we call the rapture, but the principle applies to all of us in Christ. We will all put on incorruption and put on immortality. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. When Jesus died, he literally put death to death for you and me. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now, of course, this old body of ours is going to die, but this, this isn't part of the new creation anyway. We will live in our new bodies as new citizens in a new earth uh, where death has no dominion because Jesus died the last death, destroying the power of death. And our home will be a new holy city, the capital of a new eternal kingdom, where the Alpha and Omega will be our God. And in that place, we will not need the light of the sun or of the moon, for the glory of God will be there and the Lamb will be the light of it. And we will serve the Lamb. We will see his face. His name will be on our foreheads. And we will reign with him forever and forever. What an incredible life we have been called to. What an incredible gift he has given us. What a release for us, a liberation from sin, from this whole world, from the politics of this world, from the chaos we see all around us, from the disasters that are approaching this land of ours. And none of that need touch us because we don't belong here anymore. Oh, meditate on these words. Meditate on what God has done for you. We are going to need to be strong in the months ahead. Not the kind of strength you get by going to the gym, but the kind of strength you get by just reflecting on what you have in Jesus Christ and how incredibly fortunate we are. And look at your brothers and sisters. This is our family. This is our home. This is a taste of the glory that's going to follow. Let's enjoy every moment of it until he comes to take us home. Father, please... Make this real to each one of us.